Welcome back to The Law. I am DK Williams, and this is episode 27, Chevron versus NRDC, and that stands for the Natural Resources Defense Council. This opinion was issued in 1984. It's a famous case about court deference to administrative agencies. This is where the term Chevron doctrine or Chevron deference comes from. It's an administrative law principle that came out of this case that compels federal courts to defer to a federal agency's, administrative agency's interpretation of an ambiguous or an unclear statute that Congress delegated to the agency to administer. It's controversial. It's got many critics. It's kind of been losing favor, but it's still the law. Current Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch has criticized it before uh, when he was in the uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Now he's on the Supreme Court, and there's others that feel uh, a lot like he does, and we'll quote him at the end of the podcast. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And if you need a speaker, you want someone to discuss the Supreme Court or constitutional issues, contact me by email, Dave at dkwilliams.net. And follow me on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp and on Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you. Wherever you are listening, like, comment, and subscribe if you're so inclined. So who are our named participants in this case? Obviously, Chevron, you're probably familiar with. Chevron USA Incorporated. They've got gas stations. And more specifically, from their website, they say, Headquartered in San Ramon, California, Chevron Corporation is the second largest integrated energy company in the United States. Through our subsidiaries and affiliates, Chevron produces crude oil, natural gas, and many other essential products. NRDC, they're still a thing. They were around in the 80s when this case was first started. Still there. And according to the website, this is what they do. NRDC works to safeguard the earth, its people, its plants and animals, and the natural systems on which all life depends. Two other environmental groups were respondents. They weren't named first, so no one remembers who they are, but they were the, in addition to the National Resources Defense Council, it was Citizens for a Better Environment, Inc., and Northwestern Ohio Lung Association, Inc., Supreme Court vote tally. This one's a little different because it was unanimous, but it was six to nothing. What happened to the other three, you might ask? I asked myself that as well. All I can tell you is that Thurgood Marshall, William Rehnquist, and Sandra Day O'Connor did not participate in the decision. I wonder why. I tried to find out, looked a couple places, and did not find an answer. But that's one at six and oh, six to nothing, because three of them didn't participate, even though they were on the Supreme Court. Nevertheless, 6-0 opinion written by John Paul Stevens, supported by Ford in 1975, and went to law school at Northwestern. Again, I started pointing out the law schools to show how much of an oligarchy we actually live in. Right now, eight Supreme Court justices on the current Supreme Court went to either Harvard or Yale, and the other one went to Columbia. That's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So it's also another Ivy League school in the Northeast. I find that disturbing. We need more diversity. We need some justices from state schools, state law schools. I submit University of Texas at Austin, Cal Berkeley, Virginia, and others are good enough to justify having Supreme Court justices come from there. But it's an oligarchy, and you and I ain't in it. Stevens was joined by William Brennan, appointed in 56 by Eisenhower, Byron White, 62 by JFK, Harry Blackman, appointed in 1970 by Nixon, Lewis Powell, appointed in 1972, also by Richard Nixon, and finally, Chief Justice Warren Burger, appointed in 1969 by Richard Nixon. Now, five of the six appointed in this case were Supreme Court justices nominated by Republicans. Only White was appointed by the Democrat JFK. So five out of the six justices who expanded the authority of the administrative state were Republicans. Remind me again why it's so important to vote Republican. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can have a fiscally responsible federal government. 
government. No, that's not it either. Let, let me know when you figure it out. Every answer I hear as to why it's so important to vote for the Republicans is the equivalent of something like, well, it's better to hit a tree at 90 miles per hour than to hit it at 100 miles per hour. Yeah, you know, some of us would like to avoid the tree altogether, and we are the crazy ones. Yeah. So the facts of this case, from Stephen's opinion, and it's administrative law stuff. It, this case is all about uh, defining a word used in a statute, or two words, actually, a phrase used in the statute that Congress didn't bother to define or explain anywhere. So there's a lot of technical language in, in the case, a lot of acronyms of government agencies and government rules and regulations. We'll touch on it, but the overall idea we're going to get to, most, you know, that's what we're going to focus on. So Stevens wrote, in the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1977, Congress enacted certain requirements applicable to states that had not achieved the national air quality standards established by the Environmental Protection Agency pursuant to earlier legislation. Okay, this very first sentence we got a problem because Congress dictating policy to be enforced by the states is a constitutional issue. Again, you might think it's a great idea, but great ideas and constitutional are not synonymous. And on the other hand, a bad idea can be constitutional. All too often, people equate the two and they are not. Back to the Supreme Court and Stevens. The amended Clean Air Act required these non-attainment states, the ones that hadn't gotten the goal they were supposed to get to, to establish a permit program regulating new or modified major stationary sources of air pollution. The EPA regulation promulgated to implement this permit requirement allows a state to adopt a plant-wide definition of the term stationary source and that's what this whole thing is about in this case. The facts about this case, what is a stationary source? Back to the opinion under this definition of stationary source that the EPA promulgated and Chevron agreed with and the environmental groups did not. So under the definition adopted by the EPA, an existing plant that contains several pollution emitting devices, in other words, a smokestack, for example, may install or modify one piece of equipment without meeting the permit conditions if the alteration will not increase the total emissions from the plant. The question presented by these cases is whether EPA's decision to allow states to treat all of the pollution-emitting devices within the same industrial grouping, the same factory, as though they were encased within a single bubble, is based on a reasonable construction of the statutory term stationary source. Okay, so, again, like if one factory has three smokestacks, is the factory itself one stationary source, or is each individual smokestack within one factory a stationary source? The EPA and Chevron said that one factory with multiple stacks is one stationary source. NRDC didn't like that and said, no, that can't be right. The D.C. Court of Appeals agreed with the NRDC. The Supreme Court, however, overturned the D.C. Court of Appeals, agreed with Chevron, agreed with the EPA. Now, that result seems fine, but the language of the Supreme Court, the language it used, gives administrative agencies a whole hell of a lot of power, power clearly not contemplated by the Constitution. I mean, administrative agencies aren't contemplated by the Constitution, and we'll get into that growing criticism in a bit. So the Supreme Court does some history as to how we got to this place, discusses an earlier appellate case from the D.C. Circuit from 1982. That was the same NRDC, but this time it was NRDC versus Gorsuch. Gorsuch, you might ask yourself. I'm familiar with that name. Surely it's just a coincidence that we have a current sitting Supreme Court justice also with the last name of Gorsuch. It is not a coincidence. The current Supreme Court justice, Neil Gorsuch, mother's name, is Ann Gorsuch, and she was head of the EPA at the time of these events in the early 80s. Again, we really are an oligarchy. So she served as head of the EPA between 81 and 83. She had been appointed by Reagan. She was the first female head of the EPA, for whatever that's worth. 
uh, back to the Supreme Court opinion. The D.C. Court of Appeals observed that the relevant part of the amended Clean Air Act does not explicitly define what Congress envisioned as a stationary source to which the permit program should apply, and further stated that the precise issue was not squarely addressed in the legislative history. Well, okay, that, that lays it out perfectly. That definition of what is a stationary source is the crux of the entire dispute here. A, unfortunately, they start talking about legislative history, and you know what I think about legislative history, and we'll get into that again in a bit. And so the D.C. Court of Appeals said, we regret, of course, and the, the U.S. Supreme Court is quoting the D.C. Court of Appeals here. D.C. Court of Appeals, we regret, of course, that Congress did not advert, and I had to look that up, it did not advert, what, this is a madman uh, reference to an ad- advertisement? No. I look it up. Advert in this context means uh, refer to in speaking or writing. We regret, of course, that Congress did not write out specifically about the bubble concepts application to various Clean Air Act programs. And note that a further clarifying statutory directive would facilitate the work of the agency and of the court in their endeavors to serve the legislator's will. In other words, Congress did a crappy job, and they can still fix it. They should fix it and save us all from this guessing game. Unfortunately, that would require elected officials to take a recorded stand on an issue. I wish to avoid that whenever possible. So they're just going to let the courts and the EPA keep guessing at their cryptic definitionless drivel that they pass off as reasoned and deliberative. Supreme Court noted that the D.C. Court of Appeals set aside the regulations embodying the bubble concept, which is saying that Stationary source can be an entire factory, even if it has three stacks, for example. They said that was contrary to law. The Supreme Court granted certiorari to review that judgment, and they reverse. So what should the rule of courts be when the legislature passes a statute that's unclear, especially when they've created an administrative body to implement that statute and to create regulations and to enforce them? Now, perhaps the creation of these administrative agencies is the beginning problem. Perhaps that creation of administrative agencies is unconstitutional. Now, Congress makes laws. The executive executes them. Administrative agencies do both. They also interpret their own regulations and the statute. So they have elements of all three branches. But we're supposed to have a separation of powers. And that's a serious constitutional issue. All right. There's no constitutional provision for these administrative agencies. And they cut through. They violate the entire foundational concept of our federal government of separation of powers. So where did this start? Where did this come from? What I found was in in articles about it was that this modern doctrine of the administrative state that allows the administrative state and these agencies created out of nowhere, out of no constitutional basis by Congress to take on legislative executive and judicial aspects can be traced back to, or many scholars trace it back to a 1928 case, J.W. Hampton Jr. and Company versus the U.S., in which that court, an opinion written by then Chief Justice Taft, upheld Congress's delegation to the president, the executive branch, of the authority to set tariff rates. I'm sure Trump would be pleased with that. That would equalize production costs in the U.S. and competing countries. Okay. Ignorance of economics is not the topic of this subject, of this podcast, but that was a case where the Supreme Court said, sure, Congress can delegate its authority to do things like set tariffs. Congress can set a tariff, all right? That's constitutional. It's a bad idea, but it's constitutional. But in this case, Congress said, no, you, President, you just do it. We're going to punt this over to you. We're going to abdicate our responsibility and give it to you, contrary to what the Constitution says. But the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can do that. That's fine. We may discuss that case sometime in the future, but from that Hampton case grew this idea of delegation because Congress is supposed to pass statutes, but they said, hey, we can let the executive 
do some of this stuff and we don't have to do it. And that grew to this administrative leviathan that we have now. It just grew and grew like a cancer until this huge thing that we have today with hundreds of thousands of pages in the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFRs. So 1928 was this case, 19 or 2019 now. So it's less than 100 years, like 90 years. We went from one simple delegation to this monstrosity that we have now. All right. So the Supreme Court in the Chevron case said, the basic legal error of the Court of Appeals was to adopt a static judicial definition of the term stationary source when it had decided that Congress itself had not commanded that definition. Well, Congress did not say anything about that definition, and that's a problem. They didn't do their job. The Supreme Court, in deciding what to do when the Congress does this, came up with a two-step analysis. And I had a law professor who used to make fun of such two steps and three steps and four step processes that courts come out with, Supreme Courts come out with all the time. He called it like analysis by numbers, like you're following a recipe. This is the Supreme Court's two step analysis. It said, when a court reviews an agency's, an administrative agency's construction of the statute, which it administers, it is confronted with two questions. The court is confronted with two questions. First, always, is the question whether Congress has directly spoke to the precise question at issue. If the intent of Congress is clear, that's the end of the matter. For the court, as well as the agency, must give effect to the unambiguously expressed intent of Congress. No problem with that. But in this case, they didn't do it. So they go on. If, however, the court determines that Congress has not directly addressed the precise question at issue, the court does not simply impose its own construction on the statute. Court goes on. The power of an administrative agency to administer a congressionally created program necessarily requires the formulation of a policy and the making of rules to fill any gap left implicitly or explicitly by Congress. And that's a problem. And this is one of the things that Gorsuch has said and many other commentators have, have noted about this. Because this means that if Congress fails to do its job, writes a statute that doesn't make any sense, it's not complete, then the Supreme Court and the Congress is going to let unelected bureaucrats do that job for them. And it's a moral hazard. If we let Congress punt on these important issues, guess what they're going to do? They're going to punt. This keeps them from shouldering blame for bad policy. Hey, it wasn't us. It was that administrative agency. Everything an administrative agency does is because of Congress. It's like Dr. Frankenstein's monster. You don't get to create a monster, let it out into the world, then escape blame for your creation. But that's what we have. These administrative agencies are modern-day Frankensteins, created and let loose on the world with no accountability, and you can't kill them. The Supreme Court goes on in this Chevron case. We have long recognized that considerable weight should be accorded to an executive department's construction of a statutory scheme it is entrusted to administer. And the principle of deference, that's where we get the Chevron deference, the Chevron doctrine. The principle of deference to administrative interpretations has been consistently followed by this court whenever decision as to the meaning or reach of a statute has involved reconciling conflicting policies and a full understanding of the force of the statutory policy in the given situation has depended upon more than ordinary knowledge respecting the matters subjected to agency regulations. Basically, what they're saying is that these agencies are really, really smart. They've studied everything about whatever it is they're regulating. And so we're going to listen to them because, you know, obviously we don't, we don't know about it. We're judges. And Congress didn't take the time or bother to worry about it. They're going to let these agencies work all this stuff out. And so when Congress doesn't give clear instructions, we're just going to let the agencies do it. In essence, I mean, they can't do something really, really stupid, but they shouldn't be able to do it at all. So in other words, when there's an inconsistency or something that's unclear from a congressional act, from a statute, something that's been made into law by Congress and signed by the president, when there's an inconsistency or something's unclear, we're not going to bother with statutory interpretation. The court's not. We'll just let the administrative agency do it. That's basically the Chevron doctrine, Chevron deference. So you can see, as in this case, the outcome was perfectly legitimate, but 
what it does and the precedent it set for all other administrative agencies is pretty horrible. So like we said, this this deference has strong critics and it may eventually be overturned, but for now it's officially law and it's good precedent. It's lower courts have to abide by it. It's been whittled away a little bit, but it's that case is still good. The Supreme Court goes on to discuss the legislative history of this statute where they didn't do, didn't define stationary source. And you know what I think about legislative history? What one representative or what one senator said on the floor of the House or the Senate or in a committee meeting is meaningless. Legislative bodies speak in only one way. The language of the statute passed by that body. Nothing else is relevant. Proponents of an act will exaggerate its good qualities and minimize its bad ones, and vice versa. Opponents of an act will exaggerate the bad things that will happen if it's passed. But one person's exaggerations, or even their legit concerns, are not a reasonable assistance in determining what the final statute, which was passed by the entire body, really meant. What one person says... One senator says, or one representative says, out of 100 senators and 435 representatives is meaningless. Looking at one person's statements on one day is ludicrous, as Mike Tyson would say, ludicrous. So the Supreme Court, after discussing the general idea that courts should defer to administrative agencies and their reasonable construction, so if it's not reasonable, they'll overturn it, but they're going to defer to their reasonable construction of a statute by the administrative agencies. The Supreme Court gets into applying that idea in this case. This is where the statutory interpretation and definitions can get into the jurisprudential weeds, so to speak. I don't want to venture too far into them. So an example of these weeds, speaking of these weeds. I'm going to read the sentence from the Supreme Court aloud so you get the idea of these weeds. These are acronyms all created by the federal government at some level. So, quote, in due course, the EPA promulgated NACs, approved SIPs, and adopted detailed regulations governing NSPSs for various categories of equipment. Okay, there you have it. Nobody can take a cursory glance at that sentence and have any idea what it means. EPA, they might know. NACs, that's N-A-A-Q-S, apostrophe S, NACs. SIPs, NSPSs, that is four acronyms in one relatively short sentence. Nobody can know what that means. Not, not somebody who's just kind of reading it cursorily, you know, a regular person. 98% of lawyers, 99% of lawyers wouldn't have any idea what that meant just by reading it. I mean, they could go find out, but just reading it, it would make no sense. It doesn't make any sense. And I think this is a good time to point out the absurdity of political discourse in this country and probably in every country with any type of legislative body. For example, if there's a 500-page bill, and, and Colorado just had, I think, a 2,000-page bill about uh, oil and gas regulation. So let's say 2,000-page bill. It's got a cover page that says Clean Air Act. A whole lot of people won't care what's in the 2,000 pages behind that cover page. All they care about is the cover page. And the cover page says Clean Air Act. Therefore, it must be good because everyone wants clean air. Anyone who bothers to read it and find parts of it that are bad or stupid or contradictory or unclear and has the audacity to point it out clearly hates clean air and is in the pocket of industrial polluters. Again, a recurring theme in these podcasts is if you haven't read something, your opinion of it is meaningless. It's like your opinion of a restaurant you haven't been to, your opinion of a book you haven't read. So the cover page isn't sufficient to have a meaningful opinion, even if it says this act is to create clean air or to keep clean air or to improve clean air. That doesn't mean a thing. What the specifics of the 2,000 pages behind it is what's important. But in modern discourse, that doesn't matter. Only the cover page matters. The Supreme Court goes on in this particular case, Chevron. As always in this area, the legislative struggle was basically between interests seeking strict schemes to reduce pollution rapidly to eliminate its social costs, and interests advancing the economic concern that strict schemes would retard industrial development with attendant social costs. The 94th Congress, confronting these competing interests, 
was unable to agree on what response was in the public interest. All right, now, so if Congress is unable to agree, nothing is passed. There is no law. Not about what they can't agree on. They can agree on 100 pages, but if they can't agree on one paragraph, that one paragraph does not become law. It is not passed. But what this Supreme Court case does, it lets them punt that issue down to these unelected bureaucrats of the administrative agency that they have created. They let their Frankenstein deal with it. Supreme Court goes on. In light of the situation, the EPA published an emissions offset interpretive ruling in December of 1976 to fill the gap that Congress didn't fill in, as respondents put it. These environmental groups want and argue for the correct filling of the gap, right? They're arguing about how to fill that gap. But let's think about that. Filling the gap until Congress acts is not how it works. Nothing gets done until Congress acts. And that's on Congress. It's on them. We don't get to fill in. If Congress doesn't do something, we don't get to pretend they did. But we do. (laughs) We do. We shouldn't. Constitutionally, we shouldn't. We can't. Not legitimately. But that's what the Supreme Court is having them do. Supreme Court goes on and says the Clean Air Act amendments of 1977 are lengthy, detailed, technical, complex, and comprehensive response to a major social issue. Well, they didn't define a very important phrase in it. And a major social issue that Congress punted to unelected bureaucrats who have an incentive to grow their departments, to consolidate power, to get bigger budgets. What could go wrong, right? What could go wrong with such a system? The Supreme Court gets into this legislative history and one footnote, they cite one guy, one senator, Waxman, as if his statements have any more importance than any of the other 99 senators or 430 members of the House. Then they also refer to a report adopted by a Senate committee, but not by the whole Senate or not by the House at all. Again, it's the same criticism. That's supposed to be helpful. It's not. It's a random, arbitrary, and, and, and meaningless and should be considered absolutely of no value whatsoever. Only the entire body speaks, not portions of it. So after they quote Muskie in a footnote, then they quote him in the body of the decision. Again, so what? They're relying on one guy. Think about a group of your friends, say five couples. You want to take a vacation together. You decide as a group to go to wherever you want, say Monterey, Mexico. And when you get there, one guy says, you know, when we were discussing this, I mentioned maybe we should go to Cabo. So what? You mentioned it. And then we decided as a whole to do something else. Citing one guy's remark or remarks has the same weight as what the final statute says. One senator's remarks don't reflect what the final Senate did or all of Congress did in passing something and what the president signed. One guy's remarks aren't the same thing. What one guy said about what we discussed six months ago when we were planning this decision doesn't affect what we actually decided to do. We listened to it back then, then we did something else. Final decision was X. It's X. I don't care what you said during our discussions of X. We agreed on X, not your random comment. And that's what legislative history is. Public choice theory, in essence, explains that government agents, like EPA administrators or whoever, they act in a way to give themselves more power and authority and a bigger budget. They do things that will help them individually. Government agents don't act like benevolent caretakers for the betterment of everybody else. They're acting like regular human beings. And the progressive notion that they don't, that they are some benevolent caretakers, not like evil capitalists, that they're benevolent and don't care about themselves, they're just acting out of the kindness of their heart, is stupid. So public choice theory leads us to people that get to make decisions in the government, giving themselves more power, more money, more control. A couple of bullet points. The court said that in 1981, a new administration took office and initiated a government-wide re-examination of regulatory burdens and complexities. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. 1981, what happened? Reagan replaced Carter and Reagan appointed Ann Gorsuch. Neil's mom to head the EPA. So things in the executive branch were going to change. You got a new president. The Reagan EPA, again from the Supreme Court decision, 
pointed out that the dual definition can act as a disincentive to new investment and modernization by discouraging modifications to existing facilities and can actually retard progress in air pollution control by discouraging replacement of older, dirtier processes or pieces of equipment with new, cleaner ones. So basically, if you want to make something better, but in order to get it approved, you have to go through this all these regulatory hoops and get the EPA in and have them come out and have them do all this, it might make sense to go, you know what? We're not even going to mess with it. We're not going to try to make it better. We're just going to leave it the way it is. And of course, that shouldn't be a controversial statement. That's just a fact. If the EPA and Congress wants to improve air quality, reduce pollutions, making it harder to do that is going to make it less likely to happen. Another bullet point, the court went on and said, we know full well that this language of the statute is not dispositive. The terms are overlapping and the language is not precisely directed to the question of the applicability of a given term in the context of a larger operation. First, reading some of this out loud really makes me hate the way lawyers write. But nevertheless, what they're saying here is that the language used by Congress doesn't say whatever they wanted it to mean. It's not whatever they wanted to say, we don't know. If they knew, we certainly don't know because what they passed doesn't address it. And since there's no way to know what they meant, this is my argument, given the words passed and signed in the law, we don't know what they meant. They left something out. They didn't think about something or they couldn't reach an agreement, whatever. Maybe nothing should be done until Congress fixes their language, fixes their statute. And they can do that relatively quickly if they wanted to. It's not it's like it takes them years to pass legislation and they couldn't be practically done. They can do it, but they'd have to make a decision, stake out a position and be held accountable. And they don't want that. But it's their job to do that, and the court should make them do it and not do it for them, and not let administrative agencies do it for them. There's no legit constitutional authority for courts or administrative agencies to do the job of Congress when Congress doesn't do it. And courts shouldn't make it up any more than the executive should. Make Congress do its job, or it never will. And that's what we've got. Congress just punts to administrative agencies almost all the time. Now, the Supreme Court is correct in that they're saying the judiciary is not going to fill in these gaps. We're going to let the administrative agencies do it because they're the ones that are super smart, right? They're the bureaucrats. I say that with air quotes, but that's the that's the essence of what they're saying, that the really smart guys do it, that know what they're doing. So at least they're saying judges shouldn't do it. They should also say, however, that administrative agencies shouldn't do it either. Congress has to do it. Congress will never do anything it can avoid. If it can punt to unelected bureaucrats, that's what they're going to do. And the courts have let them do it. And they let them do it here in the Chevron case. Uh, the Supreme Court decision has a subhead labeled policy. And a section on policy is wholly inappropriate to what the court's supposed to do. Policy is a legislative branch's province. And in regard to executing congressional statutes, the executive's province. Executives execute. The president executes what Congress tells him. For example... Congress can declare war, but the executive branch can allow the military, will allow the military, to set the policy on how best to fight that war. Congress says we're at war, the executives execute that war. Courts have no legitimate role in effectuating any of that. Courts don't declare war, courts don't tell the army or the military how to best go about that war. Courts don't, that's not their role, that's why we have separation of powers. Courts have no legitimate role in that. But according to Chevron, administrative agencies do, which is probably even worse. And the court recognizes this in Chevron, at least the part about courts, because they say such policy arguments are more properly addressed to legislators or administrators, not to judges. Well, at least they got the part about addressing them to legislators. That's where they should be addressed, not to judges. And where they got it wrong was they said you can address it to administrators. No, you shouldn't address it to administrators. You should address it to legislators. 
not administrators and not to judges, but they're letting them do it to administrators. So in these cases, the administrators, the EPA's interpretation represents a reasonable accommodation of manifestly competing interests and is entitled to deference. And the decision that the EPA made involves reconciling conflicting policies. Basically, those policies are, should we shut down private businesses to protect the air, or should we put some value into private businesses that are providing heat and providing jobs and producing things that people actually use. Those are the conflicting policies. But here's the deal. These conflicting policies are Congress's duties to resolve. The agency, the administrative agency, should seek direction from Congress and do nothing until they get it. The Supreme Court says perhaps Congress was unable to forge a coalition on either side of the question. Yeah, for sure they were. And without that coalition that actually passes a bill, it does nothing. It doesn't get to tell unelected bureaucrats, not legitimately, I mean, that's what they're doing, but they don't have legitimate authority to tell these unelected bureaucrats, we couldn't figure this out, we couldn't agree on anything, so y'all do it. That's an abdication of responsibility, and it's something Congress has been doing for over 100 years. Responsibility is hard, and it makes it harder to get reelected. So Congress is going to punt when we let them. We can't let them. It's their responsibility under the Constitution to make these laws, or not make the laws, but not to say we're not going to do anything, we're going to let you guys do it. Supreme Court in Chevron also says, another bullet point, judges are not experts in the field and are not part of either political branch of the government. So the political branches are the legislative and the executive. Court continues the responsibilities for assessing the wisdom of such policy choices and resolving the struggle between competing views of the public interest are not judicial ones. Our Constitution vests such responsibilities in the political branches. Yes, so make them do it. Don't cop out like this or don't let them cop out. But they did. In conclusion, this case is about the authority of administrative agencies like the EPA and about 72,000 other administrative agencies at the federal level, not even counting the state ones. What is their authority to dictate how private entities can operate? And we've talked about there's no constitutional authority for the federal government to give these administrative agencies that type of power. It's not among the enumerated powers. And again, I don't care how much you think it's a good idea for the feds to have that authority to tell states or administrative agencies created by Congress to have the authority to tell states what they must tell private entities to do. Simply asserting that authority doesn't make it legit, not in a constitutional republic like we are supposed to have. In a dictatorship, the dictator can dictate what his powers are. And I know, everybody's like, oh, Dave, the Commerce Clause. Just, just stop. That argument's made all the time, I know. And it's one. The argument has one. That doesn't mean it's right. You can argue that the moon is the sun, and even if people agree with you, and you get nine people to agree with you, like the Supreme Court, it doesn't make it so. It's specious. It's pretext used to justify an illegitimate power asserted by the federal government. And we went over Wickard v. Filburn in more detail that deals with this in episode five. Hey, I'm in the Constitution if you want to make that power legitimate. I, I know that's hard. But heaven forbid we have to do anything hard when it's just so much easier to ignore the Constitution and just do whatever we want to do. And you can say, hey, we can just vote them out, right? Well, we can't vote out judges, which is good. But we can't even vote out Congress. We can vote out our congressman. He is one of 435. Think about this. Your congressman is 0.23% of the U.S. House of Representatives. Not 2.3%. 0.23%. Less than one quarter of 1% of the entire U.S. House of Representatives. And even if you had complete and final say in who that congressman was, and you don't, even if you could just appoint him yourself, your selection of that congressperson would have the effect of blowing into the wind to stop a hurricane. It's completely 
meaningless as a mathematical issue. And I'm not even saying that's a sad state of affairs or bad. I'm just acknowledging that fact. Even if you unelect or replace your congressman, it is less than one quarter of one percent of Congress. So we can't change anything by voting. Unless your congressman is the Speaker of the House, he's got almost no say as an individual member of Congress, less than one quarter of one percent. And none of us, except if you happen to be among the one quarter of one percent of the people living in Nancy Pelosi's district in San Francisco have any voting power over her election. And I mentioned this before in an earlier podcast. So the Speaker of the House, whoever it is, Pelosi or whoever, has got a whole lot of power over what gets done in Congress. President of the Senate also. And we're supposed to have a representative government. But 99.77% of us have absolutely no vote on the congressman who is Speaker of the House. That's just a fact. We can love the Speaker or hate the Speaker. Our vote here in Denver, Colorado, or wherever you may be, has zero bearing on the status of the member of Congress who becomes Speaker of the House. And I say all this because it wouldn't be a big deal at all if the powers of the federal government were limited to the enumerated powers as actually, you know, listed in the document that set up the federal government. If Congress was actually limited to bankruptcy laws, post office issues, patents and trademarks, coining money, setting standards for weights and measures, punishing counterfeiters of U.S. currency, criminalizing piracy in the open seas, govern the District of Columbia, regulate the operation of our land and naval forces. You know, the things that are actually listed for the federal government to do in Article 1, Section 8, the person wielding the power of the Speaker of the House would be of almost no concern if they're actually only doing those things. I didn't list all of them, but you get the idea. However, when Congress has given itself the power to do anything it wants, which power has been ratified by the Supreme Court in Wickard and other cases, who wields that federal power becomes much more important. Not just in the Speaker of the House, but in the Executive Office. And when it comes to voting for the member of Congress, who's going to be the Speaker of the House, we have no vote on it. None. Zero. Because we don't live in her district. The inertia of federally elected office is almost insurmountable, especially when someone as entrenched as Pelosi. You're not going to defeat her in the San Francisco election. Inertia. Inertia can't be overcome in that context. Again, this wouldn't matter if Congress was limited to its legitimate authority, but we know it's not, and it's almost unlimited in its authority, and that's why it's a problem. And you see variations on this idea, but you know, I like this particular usurpation of power, so I won't complain about it. A lot of what Trump's doing isn't legitimate, but people that like Trump or like what he's trying to do, don't care about whether or not it's legitimate. And when we don't care about whether or not it's legitimate, it results in the usurpation of power that you're not going to like by some other guy. Obama's supporters were exactly the same. We like what he's doing, therefore we don't care if it's legitimate. But then when he's out, the new guy comes in, he's going to wield that same power. (sighs) Executive power, it's like a socket wrench, you know? It only ratchets one way. It only makes the screw tighter. It doesn't ever get looser. And it's like that with the federal government. That power grows. It never shrinks. But the political tribe members cheer on that expansion of executive power when they have it. But never consider for a second what's going to happen when the other political tribe has that power to wield. Federal control of you just gets tighter and tighter like you're the screw being screwed by a ratchet or nut, I guess. We must oppose federal power for its own sake, not just when we don't like the political tribe wielding it. It's like the one ring in Lord of the Rings. Fighting over who wears the ring is pointless. The real fight is about destroying the ring altogether. One can make a compelling argument that Boromir is a far better candidate to wear the ring than Sauron. A large group could convince themselves this is true. They could organize into a political tribe and raise money and argue about how evil Sauron is. And none of that is the point. The ring should be destroyed. Arguing over who wears it is merely keeping its power alive. Arguing over who wears it is 
the problem itself. The only good way to triumph is to destroy the ring, not argue about who gets to wear it. All right, to wrap up the criticism of Chevron, the Chevron Doctrine, from Ballotpedia, they talk about current Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch and how he thinks that Chevron deference has resulted in a concentration of power in federal agencies that increases the power of the executive branch and infringes on the separation of powers between and among the three branches of government. Gorsuch's argument harkens back to James Madison's declaration in Federalist 47 that, quote, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. And here's a quote from Gorsuch while he was on the Tenth Circuit. He wrote, in a, an administrative agency case where they're dealing with the Chevron case, the Chevron deference they're supposed to give to administrative agencies. He wrote, there's an elephant in the room with us today. We have studiously attempted to work our way around it and even left it unremarked. But the fact is Chevron permits executive bureaucracies to swallow huge amounts of core judicial and legislative power and concentrate federal power in a way that seems more than a little difficult to square with the constitution of the framers' design. Maybe the time, Gorsuch says, has come to face the behemoth. Indeed, it is time. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 27, Chevron versus NRDC, brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holler at me with your comments on Twitter at BlueCarp and Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. Government is a tool of oppression. It is not a tool of liberation. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.